Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shane Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Work. Guys, I am here with the one and only Dr. Anna McManamay, a.k.a. Dr. Mac. She is a uh, assistant clinical professor at Purdue. She's amazing. I, I love talking to her. Guys, I got her in for this episode um, of just running through my congestive heart failure medications. So she's going to run through the cardiac medications on the shelf uh, in relation to uh, cardiac uh, to um, congestive heart failure. And just breaks down real quick. This is what you use this for. This is what I reach for this for. This is what you pay attention for with this. Man, it is like 15 minutes of just jam-packed education and pearls. So good. So useful. It's great for veterinarians. It's great for your for your technicians uh, as well to listen to. But it, whether it's a refresher for you or it's just new information as you're learning your, your cardiac medicines, this is a great episode. I'm so thrilled. Guys, let's get into it. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Anna McManamay. How are you? I'm good, Andy. How are you? I'm so good, man. It's good to have you back, Dr. Mac. I uh, I love having you on the podcast. Uh, I am, uh, I'm super excited today because I've, I think we've got one of these really, really, really useful episodes that people love. I, I wanted to run through the cardiac drugs in my clinic with you and just a hundred percent get a refresher crash course of what's on, what's on the average vet clinic shelf. When do you use it? When do you not use it? Um, just, just like that. And I think it's, it's great. It's great review for me. I did this with Tasha McNerney on anesthesia drugs in the anesthesia crash cart recently. And I just, I loved it. It made me feel so like resharpened. And I just want to do that with you. Is that okay? I'm so excited. It's great. All right, let's do it. Where, where do you start when you look at your average vet clinic cardiac drugs? Yeah. So I think for me, there's kind of two categories that I would want to stock. And so being in the ivory tower, I'm very spoiled. Like everything is at my fingertips. But when it comes down to what I need to have there and then, I would say, for the category of congestive heart failure management, I would include okay. drugs first and foremost, furosemide. So that's going to be the go-to diuretic. It still is. Furosemide um, is also Lasix. Um, it's given that name because it lasts six hours in the bloodstream. So that's why it's given the name Lasix. I had that, no idea. That cool? yeah. I had no idea uh, that was I true. didn't learn that till I was a resident. So it's not common knowledge. But that's why it's called that. So furosemide, any of the semide drugs, those are going to be your loop diuretics. So they're still the most effective diuretic that we have for treating congestive heart failure. The nice thing with furosemide is that it is oral and as well as injectable. So having a bottle of injectable on your shelf, I think is super important. You can give that subcutaneously and you can give that intramuscularly or you can give it IV. Um, and so right. if I've got an animal that is clinical enough where they need oxygen support, I would recommend avoiding the subcutaneous dose. I would only do IV or IM just because at that state, they're not really perfusing their sub-Q very well. So, um, but gotcha. it's nice because you can give it any way you want and it'll work. Um, it works quick. It's just still the best one I get. Um, okay. Next drug on my list would be pimobendin, um, which I do okay. vitamin P. I'm very obsessed with this drug. Um, but pimobendin, pimobendin, especially in dogs. So in the canine world, pimobendin or betmedin is going to be the go-to um, next drug for me. Um, this is one that has proven time and time and again to be 
beneficial for these dogs' quality and quantity of life in the state of congestive heart failure. And it's even been shown to help these dogs before CHF even happens. So a few reasons to keep it on the shelf. But this drug has two main mechanisms. It is classified as an inodilator. So it's a positive inotrope, meaning it improves the contractility of the heart. It does this by basically causing a more of a chance for the actin and myosin to meet, cross-link, and form a cross-bridge. So it's okay. a calcium sensitizer, which is kind of unique because it doesn't change the amount of calcium inside of the heart cell, which like digoxin is an old tried-and-true drug. That does do that. And the downside of increasing the amount of calcium in the cell is it's proarrhythmic. So the benefit with pimobendin is that less likely to develop arrhythmia secondary to the drug. Gotcha. The other benefit is that it is an inodilator, so it's a vasodilator. So it actually does decrease the afterload on the left ventricle, as well as sometimes the right ventricle, based on where it's going to cause vasodilation. Typically, it's the veins, so we don't see systemic hypotension develop with this drug, which is another benefit compared to something like an ACE inhibitor, for example. So two big reasons why I keep pimobendin high on the shelf. Or I guess I should say low on my shelf, but high on my list um, because it's something that's good for really any type of acquired canine heart disease, whether it's degenerative valve disease or dilated cardiomyopathy. I will use pimobendin in some cases of cat heart failure as well. So if I right. a cat who has congestive heart failure doesn't have a loud murmur, then I feel a little bit more comfortable using that drug. It is definitely considered off-label for that purpose. So you do have to have that conversation with your client. But if I have a cat, especially these older kitties that already have a degree of kidney disease, it's nice to conserve the amount of Lasix that I need for that patient. So that's gotcha. number two. And then kind of staying on the cat theme, I would say having a clopidogrel or aspirin, something for blood thinning, basically cats that have congestive heart failure, they are going to have large atria. And one of the right. side effects and risk factors for cats with big atria is aortic thromboembolism. So okay. don't forget to add that treatment arm in there. Um, we have evidence in the veterinary community that clopidogrel outperforms aspirin. So that's my choice is clopidogrel. Um, there's injectable medications you can use as well, but clopidogrel is kind of the easiest, I think, for most clients. And it's once a day, which is nice. And okay. it's affordable. And then the other thing for cats, I would say, I don't think it's as of much of an emergency drug, but would be things like atenolol, which is a beta blocker. And we used to use this a lot more commonly in cats um, until we found out that doing large retrospective studies and even some smaller prospective studies, atenolol in the asymptomatic stage of heart disease in cats doesn't seem to correlate to longer survival. Um, okay. This kind of all came from human medicine, but I do think there are still going to be some cats that will benefit from atenolol therapy. Those are usually cats that have loud heart murmurs or cats that have tacky arrhythmias, so fast heart rates. Um, atenolol is also an antiarrhythmic. It can be used for supraventricular arrhythmias as well as ventricular arrhythmias in the cat and is usually pretty well tolerated. Um, and I also will use a tenolol in cases where I've got a cat that has like a thyroid storm. So thyrotoxic heart disease, a tenolol can be useful for those cats too. 
Hey guys, I just want to jump in here with a quick update. Uh, have you seen the Dr. Andy Rourke team training courses yet? Guys, over at DrAndyRourke.com, I have got resources for people who want to work with their team. I have my Angry Client course and I have my Exam Room Toolbox course. These are great little modules that are made to be broken up and popped into staff meetings so that you can cover a quick topic about either dealing with angry clients, complaining clients, or uh, or to talk about different tools in uh, working with clients in the in the exam room, guys. This is fantastic. I've got discussion questions to ask your team so they can talk about what they do, and just is a great way for everybody to see the the same thing together to talk about what works in the practice and what uh, and and what they think is important, and just to get on the same page. Anyway, I hope you guys will check it out. It's over at drandywork.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. Let's get back into this episode. Are you using a tenolol in dogs at all? The only real indication for a tenolol in dogs is uh, obstructive heart disease. So in dogs, the most common forms of obstructive heart disease are congenital. It's subaortic stenosis and pulmonary okay. stenosis. So in those animals, the tenolol is purely myocardially protective. So usually I'm using that in the asymptomatic stages and then adding in a diuretic once they develop congestive heart failure. But it's rarely going to be a drug that I am pulling off in case of an emergency, if that makes sense. So usually the cardiologist rule is don't give a beta blocker to a wet patient. So a patient that has active pulmonary edema or pleural effusion, you probably run a greater risk of just worsening their heart contractility and lowering their heart rate when they need those things in that emergency setting. But still one I think is worth having around. Okay, perfect. And then the final one I have really is um, just in cases, but is amlodipine. So this is a blood pressure medication. Um, it is a calcium channel blocker. It really acts preferentially on the cardiovascular system and just the vascular aspect. So we don't really see changes to the heart itself with amlodipine, um, but out in the blood vessels, it causes vasodilation. So this is another drug I can use in kind of two ways. Um, Both of them have the same goal. The goal is to decrease the afterload on the left ventricle. So if you are a cat or a dog and you have systemic hypertension, well, amlodipine will vasodilate your blood vessels, drop your systemic blood pressure, and that decreases the work on that left ventricle. Conversely, if I have a dog that has really bad mitral bowel disease, really a lot of mitral regurgitation, even if they're not textbook systemically hypertensive, so I'm talking about a blood pressure that's less than 160 millimeters of mercury systolic, but greater than 120 millimeters of mercury systolic, so kind of a small window, but a lot of dogs fall in there, I might use a little dose of amlodipine to drop that afterload on the left ventricle because whatever pressure is in that aorta is the pressure that left ventricle has to generate to get blood to go forward. So it's kind of this fun hemodynamic game I can play with severe mitral valve disease dogs that can kind of preserve the need for a lot of diuretics. Um, And so I call it a fun hemodynamic game. I think other people are terrible. No, I just love that that's how you see it. You're like, I'm like, this is a person who loves their job. I love it. It's just like, yeah. So it's just kind of finding those balances. What can I manipulate to improve cardiac output? So I would say, again, those those big kind of five drugs for me um, would be furosemide. So my loop diuretic, hemobendin, my inodilator, Clopidogrel for kitty cats as a blood thinner to prevent ATE, and then amlodipine and atenolol just kind of on standby for those those instances where they might come in handy. Um, I think 
other drugs that I have to talk about, but I don't think have to be on your shelf for like a quick grab are okay. your ACE inhibitor. So the enalapril, azapril, those pril drugs um, are very important to the long-term management of heart disease. So these have definitely proven their use in congestive heart failure patients long-term. Same thing goes with spironolactone, which is an aldosterone antagonist. So the ACE inhibitor and the spironolactone together do a really nice job blocking the RAS system. So trying to prevent the formation of angiotensin II and aldosterone, because okay. both of those hormones are automatically activated in congestive heart failure. And ironically, they get upregulated when the patient's on a diuretic. So we have two reasons the RAS system activates with congestive heart failure, the state of CHF and the fact that we put them on a diuretic. So we kind of need to suppress that system in order to have the best long-term prognosis. So these drugs prevent the angiotensin II and the aldosterone activity, which in the body, the reason cardiologists don't like those hormones is because those both cause vasoconstriction that increases afterload on the heart. They cause water retention and sodium retention, which increases the preload to the heart. They have fibrotic mechanisms, so they actually cause fibrosis within the heart, the blood vessels, and even the kidney, the glomerulus. So chronic activation of these is maladaptive. So they, those are my, my gotcha. CHF drugs. Yeah. Gotcha. I love it. Can can you give me some wisdom, some of your little pearls on uh, dosage dosage and frequency with, with Lasix? Uh, it feels like voodoo to me yeah. where you kind of go, I don't know, maybe yeah. a little bit more. And <laughs> like, I don't, let's just try six hours instead of eight. Uh, no. how, you know, I know that some yeah. of it's more art than science, but yeah. help me. Help, how do you yeah. get your head around that? And then when you're talking about, you know, adding... Uh, your your ACE, ACE inhibitor and your spironolactone, um, stuff like that. I go, how do how do I manage these things together? Because I feel like it's it it feels like a blunt instrument in my hand sometimes, LASIK specifically. Help, help me feel a little bit more, I don't know, uh, a little more nuanced in that usage, please. Sure. It's a great question. I always kind of, you know, we always tell students, go look up the dose and tell us what you want. But if you look up the dose of furosemide, yeah, it's, it's like huge. one to four mix per K once to six times a day. Like there's yeah, such it's huge. <laughs> so um, so the the nice thing with a diuretic is that it is a high ceiling diuretic. So you just you keep giving more until you get the effect that you want. And if you overdo it, you just scale back. And so okay. really there is. It's very much an art and kind of a gut feeling. And so what I would say is a very standard starting place for Lasix therapy, I would say in a dog is usually two milligrams per kilogram every 12 hours. Okay. In a cat, we're usually a little bit more conservative. Again, most of them are a little bit older cats. They also might have underlying kidney disease and their plasma volume is just different. So yeah. we usually do one make per kg okay. every 12 hours in cats. It's usually a pretty standard starting dose. Um, I would say that if I'm going to start a diuretic, that patient's either about to be in CHF, like they have enough clinical signs and enough concern, or they're already definitely in it. So when I start that medication, I'm not looking to take it away later. So I've seen those protocols where you start them high and then you taper them off of the drug. I don't think that's going to work for most of these patients. So I pick a dose, I start there, and then really it's about teaching the client to count breathing rates at home okay. and use clinical signs and your blood work as well as any imaging you can acquire 
to help you fine tune that dose. So what I do with my patients, when I discharge them from the hospital, I say, you have a diagnosis, it's CHF, congestive heart failure. We're going to start a diuretic. Again, two mg per kg BID for a dog, a mg per kg BID for a cat. Um, I let them know this does increase urination, so they will be very thirsty and they have to always provide water. I also let them know that the medication takes effect about two hours after they get it orally. So they will really have to go potty about two and a half-ish hours after it's given. Um, so that can save some of the 2 a.m. Yeah. trips outside <laughs> if you don't give it at midnight. So um, those are the little pearls for the clients. And then really it's, are their breathing rates less than 40 when they're sleeping? Is the coughing improved? Are they eating? If they're doing those things, I'm happy with my dose. If the breathing rates are over 40 when they're sleeping, breaths a minute, if they're still coughing a lot, I would increase my dose by about 25% over the course of the day. And if that's still not helping, I'd say I probably need to get you back in and see if we made an improvement radiographically of what's going on or am I targeting the wrong thing, what have you. Um, typically, my recheck plans are radiographs, physical history, and then looking at renal panels. So the BUN, the creatinine, and the electrolytes, those things help tell you if you're overdoing your drug. So that helps me know if I need to scale back. Um, so I think using those two things together can help you make a more objective um, kind of decision about what to do. But in general, I start with that dose, two meg per kg BID for dog, one meg per kg for cat BID, and then I go from there. And if I'm not controlling clinical signs, I escalate my therapy by 25%. And that's what I do every time. Um, there are some animals where I think um, if they're older, more crunchy kidneys, I usually like to spread out my dosing a little bit more frequently. Um, so instead of doing two doses in a day, see if they can do the same daily dose, but three times a day. Um, gotcha. So maybe give the kidneys a little bit more of a break and the body more time to recover that volume loss. Um, and then really from there, we tend to start considering doses over eight migs per kg per day. That's when we're in the, wow, these are really high doses of diuretic. Gotcha. We to switch diuretics to a more potent one, or we need to escalate other therapies instead. Gotcha. That totally makes sense. Man, this is fantastic. I really appreciate this. It was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I just, it's, it's, it's a wonderful refresher. I really appreciate your time. Dr. Mack, uh, you are an assistant clinical professor at Purdue. Uh, where can people find you online? Where can they read more? Are there any uh, resources that you're a huge fan of in the, uh, in the field of cardiology that you wish people knew about? Yeah, um, I'm. You can Google me, um, Anna McManamy. I would put Purdue with it because the other Anna McManamy in the world is a beautiful blonde bombshell bodybuilder from Australia. He's not me. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot to live up to with that, but uh, but yes. But Purdue Anna McManamy. I'm on their website there. Um, there may be some lingering stuff for me from NC State as well, but that's probably the easiest way. Um, I think in terms of resources. Um, I am a big fan of the cardiac education group. And I think I've mentioned that before on a podcast, but it is just cardiaceducationgroup.org. Um, it is sponsored by BI, but it's really well put together. Many of my mentors help run that site. Um, it's got great drug formularies for, for dogs and cats. It has like the doses, what tablet sizes they come in, which is also very helpful, I think, side effects. They've got practice cases. Um, I just think it's a really good starting point. Um, that and the VIN, I think, are, are probably my favorite. Yeah. Outstanding. I'll put links in the show notes for that. Thank you so much for being here. 
You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And that is our episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. Special thanks to Dr. Mac for being here. Guys, if you enjoy the podcast, leave me an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it really does help people find the show. If you're like, this is great, share it with your friends. Uh, you know, spread the learning love. Anyway, gang, take care of yourselves. Be well. I'll talk to you later on. Bye.